are going to continue our study in the book of Revelation today. Uh, so if you've got your Bible open already, just flip over a few more pages uh, to the book of Revelation to chapter 11. We won't go through the whole chapter today, but we're going to get through a chunk of it. Uh, and one of the things as we've been going through Revelation together that I have been trying to emphasize is that the tribulation is not merely the tribulation that is the heart of what is the events in Revelation. Uh, chapters 4 through 19 are occupied with this period of time in history, the last seven years of human history before the reign of Christ. That it's not simply a time of God's judgment. It definitely includes that, amen? Uh, includes it in, in multiple ways, uh, many of which are um, a bit frightening to read about. But it is also a, a time of the tremendous outpouring of God's grace and mercy. There will be millions of people who will come to faith in Christ uh, during this uh, time of human history because God is alongside His judgment making a gigantic play for the souls of men and women against the deceitfulness of sin and Satan. Alongside the seven seals of judgment being opened, alongside the seven trumpets blowing, and, tr and the judgments they contain being unleashed on the earth, there'll also be 144,000 Jewish evangelists. There will also be uh, uh, uncountable g millions of Gentiles from every tribe, nation, language, and people group who will be one to faith through them and who will testify. And then in addition to that, there will be two unique prophets whom God will raise up. And, and we're going to read about them today. That in the midst of all of this judgment that we've been reading about, and, and if you read about it at night, we'll keep you awake. In the midst of all of that, God is raising up His witnesses because He never leaves Himself at any time in history without a faithful witness to testify to His grace that people might escape from the judgment of the wrath of God. And I want to show these men to you, and then I also want to show you what God is teaching you and me about being His witnesses in our day through the ministry of these two witnesses. So uh, we're going to read uh, verses 11, uh, verse 1 uh, through 14 of chapter 11, and I just invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. Now these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises in the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell in the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, as we open your word, may it speak to us not only of things that will be, but things which are right now and the calling you've given us to be your witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you have to say to us, your servants and your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a lot to see in verses 1 through 3. Uh, the first thing that you see is John being given a measuring rod uh, and being told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, at the time that John wrote Revelation, there was no temple standing in Jerusalem. And by the way, there isn't one today standing. Historically, there have been three temples that have been constructed on that site. Uh, the first one by Solomon, uh, the second one uh, by Zerubbabel uh, after the exile, and then it was expanded and improved on by Herod the Great. But John references a temple. And what stands there today is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, also known as the Dome of the Rock. And it defiles and desecrates the site of the temple. And so some have said, well, uh, John can't mean that there will be a Jewish temple there. So he must mean uh, that it's the temple that John sees in heaven. Now, others have said, no, no, it's not that temple, it's the people of God who are the temple, uh, as is described in Ephesians chapter 4. And it is true that John does see a temple in heaven, and it is true that God's people are called the temple, uh, the dwelling place of the people of, uh, of God's own spirit in Ephesians chapter 4. But in light of the reference here, you have to always determine what was meant by the context of the verses that you're looking at. And what you see here is a reference to the courts, a physical location, of the temple being trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. And a reference to the city of Jerusalem. 
And so it seems logical to me that what John is describing is an assignment he's being given by God to measure the area where God is worshipped in a temple which is not at the moment standing, but which will be in that time. Now, some of you are, at, are right now, you have this question, now, Pastor, when is that going to happen? And my answer to you is, I do not know. Okay? I do not know. And by the way, if you listen to some, some nut on the radio or on late night cable TV, he does not know either. All right? So just write that down. He doesn't know either. All right? And she doesn't know. Um, there have been lots of speculation about these things. It, it will be, I think, surprising when it happens. Because traditionally speaking, the destruction of a mosque, especially one as important as that one, would lead to a war. But I have seen surprising things in 2020. Amen? And um, one of the more surprising things actually has been the fact that two more Arab nations have made a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. Not only recognize their existence, but exchange ambassadors and normalize relations. I think that's a very healthy and encouraging development. The big one to watch for, I think, is Saudi Arabia. If that happens, um, I think it's very possible that you get the restoration of a Jewish temple. Um, and might get one soon. I don't know. Um, they could they could all break down. They could all go to war again. Okay, so so don't don't read too much into that if it occurs. But um, Saudi Arabia is the big one because that's where the two holiest sites in Islam are located: Mecca and Medina, and they are the guardians of it, official Islam. And so, if they make peace with Israel. Then, that, then it will be possible for all of the other Arab nations of the world to make peace with Israel too. All the other Islamic countries will have no reason not to. The Saudis make peace. So we'll see how that plays out. But, but I think that what is going on is God is describing a time in the future when there is a literal temple, when the worship of God has resumed uh, in it, uh, and where people, um, mostly Jews, begin to naturally wonder, you know, we've been looking for, according to our faith, the Messiah, and all of these sacrifices we're offering here at the temple are in anticipation of the coming of Messiah. And let's think about who the Messiah might be. And around that same time, there will be uh, these two prophets that arise. But what will happen is, is that God, I think, the reason God is told to measure this area off is that God is drawing a distinction between his people, those who belong to him, and those outside, those who don't. And that's important because it's a time of judgment and of plagues. And if you remember back to the first plagues that you read about in the Old Testament, beginning in the book of Exodus, remember? God raises up a man named Moses, and he brings plagues. And as those plagues begin to fall, God makes a distinction 
between his people and the Egyptians. And the plagues fall on the Egyptians, and they do not fall on Israel. And I think that John is being tasked essentially with identifying, marking out who the people of God are and who are outside, and the plagues will not fall on the people of God who are alive in that time. Now, as John, after John carries out the task that he's given, John tells him, look, I'm going to raise up two witnesses to prophesy for 1,260 days. You need to pay attention to that word witness. That word witness is an important biblical word. Uh, it is a term for someone who has either been a participant in or a direct observer of some important event. And the Israelites were called to serve as witnesses to the nations around them of what God had done for them. Now, when you go through the Red Sea and you see my deliverance uh, through the plagues and through the sea, and then you enter into the land, you are to be my witnesses to all the nations around you of what God has done for you. When you see my deliverance, you're to testify about it. The last thing Jesus says to his disciples in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, is what? And you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what are the witnesses supposed to do? They're supposed to testify to all of the nations of the world about what Jesus has done, about who he is, and to give voice to what he has accomplished in their lives. And that assignment is given not just to, this, to Jesus' first disciples, but to all his disciples. Amen? That, that we get the same calling, the same commission to be his witnesses of, and to testify about Jesus, what he has done, what he has accomplished for us, that we, what, what we have experienced, we're to tell others about. Uh, if you also look at the Old Testament law, you'll see that the truth of something is certified by the testimony of at least how many witnesses? Two. You have two witnesses who directly saw or participated in an event and testify in agreement about it, then that is taken as the truth. So God raises up these two witnesses. Also, if you're paying attention, you'll notice this, that 42 months of 30 days each equals 1,260 days. It also equals about three and a half years. Uh, so the 42 months when the unbelieving trample the outer courts of the temple and trample through Jerusalem uh, equals the period of time when these two witnesses will be doing their ministry and prophesying for God. Uh, notice also that these two witnesses are going to be clothed in sackcloth. Now, y'all who aren't farmers, let me explain to you what sackcloth is, okay? Sackcloth is a fabric that is known in our world as burlap. Uh, it's, it's rough, it's prickly. It would be the last thing that you would choose for yourself as I need to make myself some pants out of this, Right? <laughs> You would, because it's itchy, it's uncomfortable, um, 
it's it's not it's not a fabric that you would make clothes out of unless unless you were doing so as an act of repentance before God. And the clothing these two witnesses wear is an indication of the kind of message that they're going to be preaching. That look, God's judgment is coming. In fact, it is falling on you right now and you need to repent. You need to repent and turn away from your sin. You need to repent and turn to God and you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ before God's final judgment falls on you. And the clothes that they wear are part of their testimony uh, underlining the truth of their message. Now we've seen God separate His people from the wicked, and we've seen Him commission His witnesses to the wicked, and now God is going to give us a snapshot of the ministry of these witnesses in verses 4 to 6, and they're going to powerfully and faithfully proclaim God's message. Verse 4, these two witnesses are called the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, you know, one of two things is true. If you either know your Bible really well, or you have a study Bible, the kind that have notes at the bottom, uh, you can cheat. Uh, on this, and you can see what else, where else that terminology is used. And where that terminology is used is in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah has uh, visions in the night that he writes down. And in uh, Zechariah chapter 4, he gives a vision of two olive trees and two lampstands that will stand before God. One is a a religious leader to restore the nation to worship. One is a political leader to restore the nation as an entity. And God says, I'm going to raise these up. And now, Zechariah's prophecy is partially fulfilled in the return at the exile with Zerubbabel, the political leader, and uh, the prophet Zechariah and other prophets that came after that were raised up uh, it was partially fulfilled by Joshua, the high priest of Zerubbabel's day, who, who helped to get the temple rebuilt and restored. Uh, but when John picks up this language and refers to these two guys as the two olive trees, the two lampstands, there's an indication that there's going to be a political leader and a religious leader that God will raise up. And that these have a similar function to the first time that terminology was used. Now, uh, God is doing many things in the tribulation period, but one of the things that he is accomplishing is the fulfillment of his Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel to bring them into uh, restoration and repentance and to bring them en masse into membership in the people of God just like he promised that he would uh, and described through Paul in Romans chapter 9 through 11, there's a promise there of the restoration of Israel and that they would in mass turn to Christ as their Messiah. And these two witnesses are accomplishing that, but they're also uh, doing so with extraordinary power. Uh, they have... Uh, the scripture says here the ability to send fire from their mouth. 
Now, there's a couple of different ways to understand that. You know, I think people immediately picture like these two guys are like dragons, like you know, and just shoots out, shoots fire right out of their lips, right? Uh, I don't think that's probably the picture actually we're supposed to get. Uh, if you look at the prophet who did this in the Old Testament, his name is Elijah. And Elijah, when the wicked king Ahab sent men to get him. If you remember this story, you can read this story. And, and, and Ahab sends some of his crack troops, sends 50 guys off to go get one solitary prophet of God. And he says, and the commander of the 50 comes up and he says, Hey, the king says, get down here. We're taking you in. And Elijah says, if I'm the man of God, may fire come from heaven and consume you. And it does. And it happens twice. Finally, Ahab sends a third guy. And he says, um, hey, by the way, if it's not too much trouble, <laughs> the king would like to speak with you, and I'll be your escort. <laughs> And Elijah says, for you, I'll go. Right? Elijah also in chapter 18, 1 Kings, it's a great story, is able to call fire from heaven with his prayer, which consumes the altar and the sacrifice and the wood and the water in the trench around the sacrifice and even the dirt in the trench is consumed by the fire that falls from heaven at the mouth of Elijah. Right, So when it talks about fire from their mouth, I think that's the picture. That as they speak, so it occurs. Uh, they can, during the, during the three and a half years of their ministry, there is no rain. Uh, they can turn water into blood. They can strike the earth with every kind of plague. Now, if you add all that together, it ought to remind you of some guys that you've read about. Guys who can call down fire from heaven. Guys who can turn water into blood. Guys who can initiate plagues. Guys who can stop the rain for how long? Three and a half years. Elijah did that too. There was a political leader who founded the nation. His name was Moses. Say it with me. Moses. Okay. And then there was a religious leader par excellence. And his name was Elijah and Together, they, he, he, one brought the nation into existence uh, by the power of God. One brought the nation back to faith in God and away from idols. And on top of that, um, you read in your Bible Malachi's prophecy that Elijah returns before the day of the Lord. You read also in Deuteronomy Moses predicting that there would be a prophet like him who would arise and lead the nation to repentance. Moses is supernaturally buried by God in a place that no one knows. Elijah never died but was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And by the way, uh, who would not like to go out like that? Right? Remember Rich Mullins singing that song, you know, when I go, I want to go out like Elijah. Lord, if you're listening, I still do. All right. Um, he never dies. 
Moses is the political leader who founded the nation. Elijah is the prophet who led the nation in repentance. Moses and Elijah both appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration just after Jesus tells his, his disciples, some who are standing here will not die until they see the kingdom of God come in glory. And so they get a foretaste of what's coming, these three disciples that follow Jesus up on the mountain, and they see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. The beginnings of the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus himself said that Elijah comes before the end and that John the Baptist was Elijah if you believe in John's message. But if you don't believe in John's message, Elijah is still coming. You read Matthew and Mark and see that. Um, so let me be clear. I'm not saying for sure, because I don't know for sure, that it will be Moses and Elijah who show up at the end. But if it's not, we're meant to understand that these two guys that show up will be just like them. That they will minister in with all of the same power, doing the same kinds of miracles as a gigantic warning to anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear that God's judgment is coming and you can repent and be forgiven and receive restoration and renewal and new life in eternity and escape from God's judgment now and then if you will put your faith in Jesus. Because remember what God is doing, that he's not, just, he's not just sitting up there in heaven going, well, I'm just going to lash out at everybody and show them how mad I am and pity those poor people who are alive at the end. That's not the point of what he's doing at all. He gets to demonstrate that he is there and he is not silent, as the title of one of Francis Schaeffer's books reads, right? That God is there and he is not silent. And that no one on the earth will have any reason to think that somehow God is not giving you enough evidence that He is present. And not only present, but powerful. And judges sin and saves the righteous who turn to Him in repentance and faith. These two men will minister with the invincible power of God on full display so that people will be without excuses. And that's what you'll see um, as they minister. And what you see in verses 7 through 14 is that they do so until their death and resurrection. When their ministry is done, God will allow them to be killed by the figure that is here called the beast that rises out of the bottomless pit. Now we'll get into who that is later. That's coming. Okay? Uh, but... We can call him the Antichrist for now. And um, he, will, he will be able to kill them after three and a half years. And all of their enemies across the entire world will rejoice and celebrate. It will be a holiday. They will give each other gifts. Because they will think that, well, we have eliminated all of the sources of the torment and difficulty that we have been undergoing for all this time. And now that these two guys are dead, we can finally get back to normal. And interestingly, uh, to dishonor their memory, 
their enemies will leave them to rot in the street for three and a half days. And at the end of the of three and a half days, um, they will rise again. Now, interestingly, it also says that people from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies. In other words, people all over the world will be able to gaze on the death of these two guys. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because at the time that John wrote this, there was no way for people all over the world to see anything. In fact, in fact, there was nobody apart from God who knew where all the people around the world even were. Right? That's why with Columbus, it was called the Age of Discovery. It was actually more like the Age of Rediscovery. That, hey, there are people over here. Who knew, right? Um, and, uh, you know, there were whole countries and nations and empires all over the world in John's day, but they didn't communicate with one another. And there was certainly no way to see events simultaneously. By the way, is there, an, is, is there anything that you might have in your pocket that enables you to see events happening as they happen on the other side of the world? You do, right? You have a phone, and it's connected to the Internet and to satellite communication. And people all over the world in all nations are able to see events unfold simultaneously. How do you think John knew that would happen? He didn't. John told him, this is what will happen. And John went, okay, and penned it, right? Um, but that will happen. They will see this simultaneously. But at the end of three and a half days, God will raise them up and restore them to life and carry them to heaven. And everybody around the world that's been looking at them will see it happen. Can you imagine that moment, what you would think if you saw it? And you'd just been rejoicing over the death of these two guys who caused you so much trouble for three and a half years. And then all of a sudden you see them stand up. And not only then stand up, but ascend to heaven live on video. I'm like dying to find out what CNN will say when that happens. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how that will get explained, right? This is the BBC, and we're seeing these two men ascend into heaven. You know, I mean, it's going to be weird, right? And then right after that, the Scripture says there'll be a tremendous earthquake in Jerusalem, and a tenth of the city will fall down, and 7,000 people will die. And those who are alive, it says, will give glory to the God of heaven. Son, I bet they will they'll be terrified of what they've just seen. Because dead people in the normal course of events do not rise. Not after three and a half days, right? I happen to follow and greatly admire another man who was dead for three days and got out of the grave, right? And these three guys are a reminder and a testimony of that reality. Verse 14 tells us this is the second of the three woes 
the three woes, that's like, woe is me, not like, woe, stop. Um, but three woes, three terrible things that are going to fall on the earth. There was a, it's a great eagle that flies through heaven in chapter 8, verse 13, and announces, woe, woe, woe to the people who live on the earth. And, this, and John tells us, this is the second one. This is the second one that's meant to lead people to a place of repentance and faith. And I think, just to give you kind of a, a snapshot of the timeline, I think what happens is that the seal judgments, seven seals that get opened, that culminates in the opening of the seventh seal, which unleashes the seven trumpet judgments, I think that's about the first three and a half years, roughly. And I think the trumpet judgments, and we're going to see the seventh trumpet blow next week, take place over most of the last three and a half years. And then the bowls are just boom, 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 boom. They just unfold rapid fire right before the coming of Christ. So we'll get into that weeks to come. Hang in there. But before we get there, uh, I think this passage is important in two ways. Number one, it tells us the truth about God's ultimate triumph over sin and evil in the world. And, though, and it reminds us that though the future is uncertain from our perspective, that nothing that will happen in the future is uncertain from God's perspective. God is, as he is described in Isaiah, the one who declares the end from the beginning, who knows what will happen in the future before it happens, and even does us the courtesy of writing it down to us. So that when it happens, we're not going, we're not surprised. Yeah, this is this is happening. This, we know this is going to occur. This is how history is going to come to its culmination and conclusion. This is what God is doing in the process of that. This is why God is allowing these events. It is so that people might repent and escape from the judgment that is to come. But at least as important and maybe more so for us right now, is not just that these things are told to us about days in the future, but what these witnesses tell us about what we're to be doing right now. In the very last of the, of the last days, God is certainly going to raise up two special witnesses that at a very minimum will be a lot like Moses and Elijah. But between now and then, God has raised up multiple millions more witnesses. Multiple millions more witnesses. And he has called millions of people, including you and including me, to be his witnesses. Now, let me be very clear. I don't think that it's necessarily in your, as part of your commission as God's witness to call fire down from heaven on anybody. Right or to uh, make the rain stop or um, turn the Nile into blood or any of that, right? Uh, although James does say uh, that Elijah was a man like us. He prayed and it did not rain for three and a half years. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective as it is working, right? So it's not that uh, that is not possible because you're not them. It's because God is not chosen to give that to you as your calling at this moment. 
okay? The same God whom they served is the same God whom you serve, and you ought to pray boldly. But the reality is, is that your calling and theirs are not as distinct as you might think. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have a receipt, you have received a commission from Jesus to be his witness. Amen? In fact, we even highlight it for people in the Bible so they don't miss it. We call it the what? The Great Commission, right? The Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them uh, to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, right? And you're to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so that people understand that God is triune and He sent His Son to die in your place and then sends the Spirit to bring you new life. And this is part of our calling and our commission to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We have received a commission just like theirs. And our commission is just like theirs to faithfully proclaim God's message, not for three and a half years, but for the entirety of our lives. Until the day when, like them, we will die and be raised. Now, your, your death and resurrection may not be as dramatic as theirs. Probably no one will have it on live feed on CNN, right? But one day, unless the Lord returns prior to then, you will die. And you will, in that moment, be raised to new life, and your spirit will be with the Lord until He returns and your body is also transformed and raised. But until that day comes, you and I are to be faithful to our commission to carry out the message God has given us into all the world. And by the way, I know that right now things are challenging. It's hard to get together with people. It's hard to talk to people. No one, no one is going, man, if I could just have another meeting on Zoom, that would really make my life complete. Right? Right? If only I could sit down for coffee and a mask with someone new. That would be wonderful, right? It's not what we're wanting. But here's the reality. As, as much as it is true that people are dying of this virus, it ought to underline for us the necessity of being faithful to carry out our commission. Because some of these people who are dying are dying without Jesus. Some of these people who are going into the hospital are going in not knowing whether they will come out and if they come out, how, what their life will be like. And wouldn't it be great to know as you go in, you know what, it really doesn't matter if I come in, a, in out of this hospital in a bag or out in the wheelchair as they stick me in my car, it really doesn't matter because to live is Christ and die is gain. Wouldn't it be nice to go into the hospital with that knowledge? Wouldn't it be nice to go to your death with that knowledge that I don't care how and when I die because I know what happens after? And in the meantime, be faithful to carry God's message to all you know.
You know, I mentioned in the first service, and this is true, I have done, in the last 13 years, I have done 50 funerals in this church. That's a lot. 50. 50 people have been buried from this pulpit right here. And their casket or their urn sat right there. And I was blessed to know many of them as followers of Jesus Christ. And you know, the ones who were devoted followers of Christ, as much as I mourned their passing, you know what, to a person they all said to me if they knew they were dying? They said, Pastor, when you preach my funeral, you be sure to tell the gospel everybody who's there. You be sure to tell them that I said that they need to believe in Jesus because I'm going to glory and I want them with me. You know what that is? It's being faithful to your calling all the way to the end. Being faithful to your calling until your death and your resurrection. I know it's difficult. I know it's challenging. But you know what? It's also easier right now than it's going to be later. Because right now, people have ears to hear. And you can bring it up naturally. So, hey, you know, I know I know you, you aren't dying of the virus. At least not yet. But, you know, have you thought about what would happen if you did? Have you thought about what would happen if you did? Can I tell you the best thing that's ever happened to me? Let me, let, me, let me testify to you about what God has done in my life and how I have peace whether I live or whether I die. There are people right now who have ears to hear, maybe for the first time in their life, because there is this thing going through our society and it is absolutely merciless and relentless. And there are people who are young who die, people who are old who die. And it does not care. But God does. And He has given us this opportunity right here to make the gospel known. And has teed up issues of life and death for us to carry out our commission. And if we want, we can get all wrapped around the axle about the election and about politics and about um, the impact of, well, the president's sick and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Or we can focus on our job and do our job before the Lord, which is to make sure that the message of Christ is faithfully proclaimed until our last breath. Amen? Let's pray.